Welcome to a podcast on fire and the first out of two parts interview with Canadian stuntman, actor and now filmmaker Bruce Fontaine. All context and uh, info will be explained and delivered as soon as I cut to the recording from a while back, very shortly. But in this first part, we cover Bruce's Vancouver beginnings, his transition to Hong Kong, his favorite movie experiences as a Western action performer in Hong Kong action movies, and what it was like to get a chance to lead at IFT Films and Arts in the likes of Kickboxer King. But first of all, some uh, brief contact information, and this is Podcast on Fire and the sort of a interview booth series that we uh, have placed uh, in a flag show. Uh, show. And uh, if you are a first-time listener and uh, you might have gone to podcastonfire.com where we have this show and all our other shows on the likes of Japanese cinema, Korean cinema, Lucy cinema, ninjas, or have been the subject of uh, a series that uh, has now concluded. We also have bonus episodes and audio commentaries. And the thing is, if you're a first-time listener, I hope you find something that you like. And uh, don't be shy and let us know, but uh, you deserve a big old welcome and hope you enjoy your stay if you want to get in touch with us uh, use our email podcast on fire at googlemail.com if you want to interact with us uh, uh, where because we we mostly spend our times on social media and by clicking the facebook button at the top of our website you'll reach our page you can also type in podcast on fire network on facebook to reach our discussion group where most of the show updates and discussion points are posted and uh, join we're a friendly bunch and uh, if you want to follow us on twitter click the twitter button the account is at podcast on fire click the itunes button to subscribe you can leave a star rating and even a written comment in terms of what you thought of the show we would very much appreciate it and finally stream us on stitcher radio click that button to get to their website and stream us on the web but you can also do that via the applications available on the apple app store or google play I write about Hong Kong and Taiwanese movies of a variety of genres over on SoGoodReviews.com and my small bite-sized and uh, very basic video reviews are available over at SleazyKVideo.com. So, without further ado, roll the interview and I hope you enjoy it. And welcome back to the Podcast on Fire Network interview booth. And I'm very happy and honored to be able to spend some time with someone who, who's graced Hong Kong cinema action screens in 20-plus uh, movies, including some of your favorite Andy Lau, Jackie Chan, Yokari Oshima, Stephen Chow, and Sam Hung Productions. And uh, really, he, he was a great integral part of the golden age of Hong Kong action cinema and how they worked in the abilities of Western talents. And also, there's a behind-the-scenes career of note, including directing. So, over the course of this interview, we are going to get to know Mr. Bruce Fountain. So, welcome. How are you, sir? I'm fine, thank you. Happy to be here. Excellent. And, uh, yeah, if uh, people don't uh, recognize the name and face right away, then do yourself a favor and check out uh, a uh, the filmography on Hong Kong Movie Database, for instance. And uh, I think people are going to... Uh, get a little bit of a reminder jolt of uh, where they've seen you but we will certainly do our best to uh, remind listeners of uh, what to look for if you will uh, but uh, it's the cliches of these interviews uh, and i believe in starting from the top and the origin point if you will so where were you born and raised bruce i'm born and raised in vancouver bc canada i'm a little older now i was born in 61 i moved to hong kong back in 1988 that uh, journey from Canada to Hong Kong is certainly something we'll uh, we'll cover, but there, there's always steps before that are crucial into making such a journey. And uh, I'm always curious, uh, what kind of environment was Vancouver for you? I mean, were there aspects and interests present, such as martial arts, that reached you? Or did you have to seek out those passions uh, by yourself, uh, if you will? I was, uh, again, I'm born in 61. I'm of that age that saw in the early 70s Bruce Lee, the Kung Fu TV series, and those things uh, got my immediate attention. I, I immediately fell in love with you know the Bruce Lee and the Kung Fu movies, and I basically decided I wanted to, to learn martial arts, uh, particularly you know Chinese stuff, uh, Chinese martial arts. So uh, there was some kids actually lived in the neighborhood that were Chinese Canadian. Uh, they introduced me to a, a martial arts school, 
I was one of the few white kids in this school in Vancouver's Chinatown. That club was called the Wong Ha Club. It's kind of an old school kung fu type place. And again, we're talking 70s. So, you know, the kung fu scene was quite different back then. Mm -hmm. That's kind of got what got me started. There was also, you know, we were adjacent to the Vancouver Chinatown area. So the Chinese theaters were were there back in the day. And, you know, there were all the Shaw Brothers kung fu movies. And I became a regular. I was probably the only, you know, 13, 14 year old white boy going to the Shaw Brothers Theater. And then there was the Golden Harvest Theater. A few years later, the Jackie Chan early kung fu movies came out, you know, Snake and Eagle Shadow, that sort of thing. So I was I was exposed to it uh, at a very young age back in kind of, you know, the, the, the first wave of kung fu movies. I mean, mo- looking at the movies alone and the entertainment that movies provide, that decade must have been... It must have been endless in terms of what movies to watch, whether the high-profile ones like Bruce's or Jackie's, but everything in between. I mean, I, I can never have that in my life, both being you know born late 70s, but also in, in Sweden, where Kung Fu was certainly not as popular in that regard. So I'm, I'm most jealous of those that can access those memories where I, I saw this and this on the on the big screen. and But, but it's all, all the more admirable when the big screen adventure led to inspirations in terms of where to go in your life as uh, someone who wants to do something physical with uh, that inspiration. Uh, But it didn't sound like, at least in terms of the research, that just because you saw Bruce Lee that it was Jeet Kune Do that you automatically was drawn to. I I, I read something about that Choi Li Foot and Wushu were part of your training, if uh, not... Uh, part of the initial training so uh, want to tell us a little bit something about uh, that uh, first starting training when i was in uh the wong ha club which was a trolley foot school you know like i said i was going to the chinatown theaters uh which kind of exposed me to a lot of different things i was a huge fan of uh perhaps your your listeners know del and tan lash legs i used to love his stuff and i would literally go to the school and try to emulate uh what i would see del and tan doing you know, later the wave of Jackie Chan, Yun Biu, Sammo Hong, all that came out. And I was just blown away by it. It was uh, kind of a new level of agility that you didn't really see in kind of some of the conventional Kung Fu stuff. Um, and not with the type of training I was doing, which was more very kind of conventional Kung Fu without the acrobatics. So I decided to seek out gymnastics. And I, I did some gymnastic training simply because I fell in love with what I saw Yun Biu and Jackie Chan doing. Mm-hmm. The closest I would get was picking up some gymnastics. Around about the late 70s, uh, competition wushu came, uh, got exposed in North America. Uh, I'm sure some of your listeners will know who you know Jet Li is. Uh, some tours in the early 70s, and there had been a little bit of exposure, uh, but there started to get to be more exposure. And there was a teacher that came to Vancouver, uh, I think in like 1980 or 81, and then there was another individual that was a classmate of Keith Cook, also known as Keith Hirabayashi. Some of them might know him from that uh, um, Cynthia Rothrock movie, China O'Brien. But anyways, this gentleman's name was Tom. He was a classmate of Keith, and he started teaching. So when I found that out, I said, all right, I'm doing Wushu now. Um, And and Wushu has a lot more acrobatics and and that sort of thing. That was a big thing for me for a while. Uh, But I got to be honest. You know, I became a huge fan of Jackie, Samo, and Yun Biu. In fact, it got to the point where uh, if they weren't in the film, I wasn't interested in going. <laughs> uh, you know, I started because Vancouver, we had three three Chinese theaters, uh, Shaw Brothers, Golden Harvest, and Sun Sing. And there were so many. You could just go to a kung fu movie literally every weekend if you wanted. And I kind of got to the point where I'm like, I don't want to see, you know, all, all the movies because some weren't all that great. Yeah, there's always the um, the Xerox copies of the great ones that set a trend. Um, so not every kung fu comedy of the Jackie Chan's were good. In fact, a large percentage of them weren't. So I, I got kind of fussy, and I would only go see kind of you know the, uh, the, the you know the films like the Police Stories, the Project Days, and those kind of films. And honestly, it was kind of a big passion for me. I, I, I was really a huge fan of Jackie. Um, I was, you know, doing the wushu, but I was also playing around with taekwondo. I was playing around with gymnastics, um, and I just something about the, the way they could move just kind of really resonated with me. 
you know, and then for a little while I was doing the competition wushu and that is honestly kind of what got me to Hong Kong because we had a, um, a national team tryout. Uh, I qualified and there was a second international wushu competition in 1986 in Tianjin, China. But at that time there were no flights directly to China from Canada uh, because China was very different back then. Uh, so we flew into Hong Kong. Uh, one of the team leaders uh, for the Canadian Wushu team had a relationship with someone involved with a variety TV show in Hong Kong called Enjoy Yourself Tonight. Oh, yeah. uh, so they, they asked uh, myself and one other, other individual to perform on the show. After the show, I actually had a couple of people say, oh, you should get involved in films. And at that particular time, that's just when Cynthia Rothrock had finished Yes, Madam. And Richard Norton, I think, had been in maybe Shanghai Express or something like that. Or Millionaire's Express, I think it was. I can't remember the name. But I got to be honest, that kind of started a spark for me. Uh, anyways, I went to China, did the competition. Uh, later on, I went to stay in Beijing to train for a while. And there was a young man there named Jeff Falcon. I'm sure some of your listeners, mm -hmm. if they're fans, will know Jeff. Jeff was in Beijing. And just by coincidence, some of them may know him. Dan Mintz was, was also in Beijing. Um, and we all hung out and you know, uh, while I was there because I was there for about a month. Anyways, I went back to Canada and I got a letter uh, maybe about a half a year later from Jeff Falcon uh, telling me that he's going to Hong Kong to work in a Jackie Chan movie. Uh, which happened to be not actually a, a Jackie Chan film, but rather one that he produced called Inspectors Wear Skirts. Mm -hmm. And I went to see that in the theater, and I was like, oh, my God, if he can do it, why, why can't I? And then just by coincidence, a short time later, Armor of God came out. And uh, I went to see that, and there were you know, a fair number of non-Asians in there. And I just kind of, honestly, on the, the time, on the the very night that I saw Armor of God, I said, that's it. I'm going to pack up and move to Hong Kong. I mean, it sounds like such a, uh, such a whirlwind. But then again, you had some time to yourself to 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 conjure up possible paths uh, here, we, we, which is wonderful uh, that uh, that it both moves fast, but also you have time to contemplate. OK, uh, crossroads time, if you will. Yeah, well, even in my younger days, I always knew that I would probably end up spending some time in Asia. I was a teenager. I was, I, I'd like to live there. I'd like to spend time there just to experience it. Uh, but there was never any concrete, tangible plan where I said, this is the date I'm going there. This is what I'm going to do. Um, because when I was watching the, the Kung Fu movies, when I was, let's say, a bit younger, uh, I never saw a spot for me. Because at that time, you didn't see that many non-Asians. I mean, there were the odd ones here and there. But there was that wave, as I'm sure you know, you know, Cynthia Rothrock, Richard Norton, mm -hmm. you know, Jeff Falcon, and then the then kind of the Mark Houghtons and the rest of us kind of, you know, uh, came, uh, you know, went to Hong Kong and started becoming, you know, regulars on screen. But it was that night, like I said, on Armor of God, I just said, that's it. Um, I'm going to pack my bags. And I spent maybe a half year prepping, uh, just like saving money and that kind of thing and um, figuring out what date and, you know. I took some acting lessons, not that it helped me any. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the demand demand was more physical, maybe, than uh, than verbal, uh, as far as I know as a viewer, uh, in terms of how, how Westerners were, would be used in movies. Yeah, well, I, I honestly, I got it pretty quick, and I just used, when people asked me about what I do, I said, look, I just stand around in the background until they're ready for me to do a fight. Mm -hmm. There's someone that says, fight, right? You know, and, and then you just fight. How how difficult is that, uh, either at the beginning, middle, or so to say, end of a career, to be ready without prep in terms of rehearsal or having a conception of a fight scene beforehand? Or you you just have to learn that on the fly, otherwise you you're screwed and not in demand anymore. Honestly, that that was pretty much it. Um, the thing I always said about rehearsals over there, because I get this question a lot from people here, rehearsals is something we did five minutes before we shot. Uh, wow. Yeah, literally any fight I ever did, I never learned the fight it's in, in its entirety. We would learn pieces, then we'd shoot it, right? So literally just, you know, the camera would be there. We'd work with whoever part of the team was, whether it's one of Jackie's people or whoever, 
I would say, we want you to do this punch, this kick, make sure you land on this mark, you know, a little bit of coaching about camera position. And then they'd say, cut, and they'd move the camera, whatever, and they'd say, all right, next piece, you're going to do this. You'd maybe overlap a move or two, just so they had the leeway in the editing. And then you'd be taught the whatever number of moves you need to do, and then they'd, you know, shoot, and then you'd move on to the next piece. Uh, and that's literally how I did everything there, right? Um, never once did I learn a, a fight scene in its entirety. Well, well, we all know that doing complete run-throughs as a master shot was something Hong Kong choreographers and uh, coordinators, they didn't do because that wasn't the preferred style and that's what separates the Hong Kong style versus um, a Western style. And But but still, you the, the number of performers, Westerners or not, that managed to pick up this five minutes before and go with the flow and get the successful result on screen and get rehired i mean surely you weed people out that that are not ready for this but when you are ready for this and can thrust forward and get rehired i mean you 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 have to reflect on that and pat yourself on the back for for getting in tune and in sync with a work requirement and working working method like that because hong kong working methods are are like you just described but they're also uh, tough and demanding and time consuming because uh, i'm sure you did uh, did long days uh, too and uh, grueling days on, on a variety of shoots i would say you definitely nailed it on the head i used to joke we we used to say that you know uh, you get one shot if you don't do a good job you're not going to get called back mm-hmm. right remember say the choreography if you don't have control if you hit one of the stars it's okay if we get hit right because that's kind of you know it's like stunt guy right so you might take a few bumps but you don't hit the stars because oftentimes you fight the stars, not a double, right? And so you can't hit a star. You got to remember the choreography. If you take too many times uh, to to do takes, too many takes, you're not going to get called back. And just a quick little little story. One of the last films I worked on was called Big Bullet. I can't remember the young man's name, but uh, that was like the last film I did when I was in Hong Kong. And they had this young man in the scene that I'm in. I don't know if you know the film, but we fight with a, uh, a Chinese actor named Yuen Gong. He's the villain, in it, one of the villains in the gang. Anyways, there's myself and this British fellow. Unfortunately, I can't remember his name, but he's like a UK welterweight kickboxing champion. Right. Really keen, right? We arrive on set, and I just go, I get changed, I get go through the makeup stuff and I go just uh, I'll be over here call me when you're ready because I've done it before there's a lot of hurry up and wait as we call it mm. and the British boy is just so pumped he's so keen he's like aren't you excited I'm like I've, I've done like 20 or 30 of these at this point <laughs> I, I'm over it, right it's just a day at, day at the office so to speak work uh, but the thing was he couldn't remember choreography and they were trying to give him like the simplest sequence but it's kind of very Hong Kong. It's you know like what I call the flicking kicks, and you know he had to land in a certain position so that the the hero could do certain kicks, and he could never hit the position he needed to. There was one where he's supposed to drop to one knee but leave his chest exposed so that the the actor could do a spinning back kick. He'd drop his chest down instead of keeping his chest upright. At one point, because I understand some Cantonese. The choreographer is telling the actor, oh, just hit him for real. Wow. <laughs> Chinese. And I understood that. And I was, I just kind of interjected. And I said, can you give me a couple minutes with the boy? And honestly, at the same time, I'm thinking this kid could kick the shit out of everybody on set. Tough British kid, you know, you know, that type, right? And he's a welterweight kickboxing champion of UK. So I'm going, we don't want to really mess with this boy, right? But, you know, the point was he never really did much after that. And it was larger because he just he didn't have that ability to remember the choreography. You know, you know, it all sounds like when all is said and done, it sounds like for Hong Kong cinema it's rational expectations, meaning high expectations. But they are in in the eyes of Hong Kong cinema and their makers, they're rational expectations because we know we make the best action movies in the world. So this is what we expect out of you at the same time and i don't i don't want you to to gossip about anything but you also hear on the flip side that westerners at 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 least the time in the 80s and maybe a bit into the 90s weren't necessarily treated well but maybe that comes from the fact that if they don't perform up to our level then we simply are not going to like them and and they're out so yeah it, it varied from set to set 
you know, you get some sets where the people are just wonderful. And then you get other sets where you go, oh, okay, these people are not treating us very well. Our main thing was, you know, we got paid on time, which was sometimes an issue. Uh, the, the non-Asian guys there, we all kind of looked out for each other. And I, I got to be honest, some of the Hong Kong stuntmen, I'm not talking producers, uh, would also be really good to watch out for us. But, uh, yeah, there were times where they could they could treat us pretty crappy. And, you know, to be honest, mostly it was just about us getting paid on time. Yeah. I mean, it's it's it sounds like uh, almost this um, the the workers, for lack of a better description, they mm-hmm. looked out for each other, whether Chinese or or Westerners, and that's you know you you have that positivity in your back pocket, if you will, and uh, and it's uh, it, I'm sure it's inspiring work when it all clicks, which it certainly did for for you in in a variety of movies, and I suppose that leads into the question, like, what's a personal highlight or highlights in terms of the personal and professional experience over the course of those 20 plus movies i mean considering the epic nature of armor of god 2 and the hotel scene fight with jackie you and ken goodman i believe yeah i mean that is easy to single out but i i do remember more fondly because it's the first kind of experience in you seeing curry and pepper on vhs way back in the day with you and deborah grant in that uh, uh, as tourists that start to beat uh, the shit out of Stephen Chow and Jackie Chung, but it, it's not an epic movie like Armor of God 2, of course, but uh, it's still a fun memory for me now that I think back on it. Well, we were still working on Operation Condor, mm-hmm. and I gotta be honest, I had people recognizing me constantly in the streets really? forever, because when we largely filmed in, in Jim Sajoy, which is you know where I lived, and so, you know, I'd walk around the streets and, you know, people are familiar with that area and it's prominent in the film. So people would be spotting me and I'd hear them going, Galilaju, which is a, a Cantonese name for the movie. So I got, I got a lot of, uh, I guess you could say, you know, recognition or got recognized uh, because of that film. And that film was actually quite well received in, in terms of box office. It was quite a hit at that time. Mm-hmm. And I'll be honest, it was one of my, my fonder uh, films because uh, uh, also the people treated me really well. That was one of the the productions where uh, the people on set were great to work with. Everyone was respectful of you and your abilities. You know, as opposed to say some other films where they, they just couldn't give a toss. You're just like a, a prop. Yeah. And as for Curry and Pepper, I mean, it's the greater example I think of Hong Kong doing lethal weapon correctly with uh, their comedy style, but also this elevated nature to to the action it's it's got hard action and bloody action and uh, blackie co was the director and i i always admire and love blackie co so it's a memory for me that i like but uh when all is said and done it, because it's so big uh, armor of god 2 is that the fondest memory or you can't really look at it that way just because it was big it's the fun more fond memory operation condor i i worked a lot of days i i did like a total of like 60 days or something like that um, because that film spent, it was nine months. We used to joke and see, uh, Jackie giving birth, uh, type thing. <laughs> and, and Jackie, uh, I always say was next level for me. Um, because, you know, we worked on like the angel terminator type movies and, and of course, curry and pepper and the, the IFE things, but we never got, uh, I guess you could say the, the level of explanation that Jackie would give. And the, the fortunate thing for me and, and Ken Goodman, uh, Jackie at first didn't really know any of the Westerners and wasn't sure of us, but he thought we might just, cause there's a lot of travelers that just, you know, happen into Hong Kong films. And we said, no, we came there specifically and we're fans of his work and we wanted to learn everything we could. Uh, so he used to invite us to the editing trailer and every chance I got, I would go watch him edit because that's a big part of their process. So on Operation Condor, I got to do a lot of things um, that I had never experienced in any other any of the other film sets. And, you know, they would say, we want you to say on like the Angel Terminator movies, kick punch, kick punch, cut. Then they'll move the camera. But nobody's really explaining things yeah. or the Chanel. Jackie actually started to take the time to say, well, I'm moving the camera here and I'm going to cut here. And I know I want to overlap this move with that move. And he explained the reasons for it. And then we'd sit and watch the editing and you go, oh, OK, I get it. Right. And I'm a big fan of that that type of films, but I've never been involved with the up until then with the editing process. 
Um, so it was, it was a big, big, uh, um, thing for me working for Jackie, you know, just cause I learned so much and it was like, again, next level. Um, you know, some of the other films are great. I don't know if you've ever seen it or heard of it. There was a film called Forsaken Cop. I've seen it. It's one of those that I know I've seen it, but I can't remember specifics of it. So It's not a very well-known film, but the people were great. And yeah. it was those fight scenes where I, I felt I got a chance to shine. You know, and then there was a, a film I did with Cynthia Khan. People might know of the alley fight and the car stuff. Again, that was with a former Jackie guy named Chris Lee and Chris was great. Right. And Chris was like trying to exploit my talents. Like I was fairly good with the legs and Chris was trying to exploit that. And he wanted to give me a chance to shine, which was nice. And they kind of also were pushing my limits because, you know, a lot of times with the stunt stuff, they wouldn't always ask the Caucasians or the non-Asians to do anything outside of punching and kicking. But in that one, uh, if it's called Middleman. I don't know if you, you know it. I uh, remember I have seen it again. It's one of those movies that I probably liked, but memory has faded. <laughs> I got to jump onto a moving truck, and then I'm jumping from one moving truck to another truck, then I fall off a truck, and I get hit by another vehicle. And not a lot of the Westerners got called on for that sort of thing. Not I'm not saying no one else did, but generally you were just there to punch and kick. And then, the again, Chris Lee, who was a, a, a former JC guy, um, he was great and he was trying to really, I feel he was giving me a chance to shine. So I'd say middleman was a good film, but it's not a well-known film. It's one of those in the line of duty, uh, sequels. Yeah. One of the latter ones, if not the last one. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was one of the last and it was Donnie Yen was no longer part of it. So yeah. I don't, it was, uh, is as memorable cause it was just Cynthia Khan. You know, in Forsaken Cop, I like, but it was not a, a well-received film. It wasn't a, a big hit or anything. But in it, I go, okay, I had a nice chance to shine here. You know, other films, say like, say Angel Terminators, right, was just a nuisance for me because they, they, they were never filming consistently. They would break for months and then they'd call me back. Jeez. You know, and they'd say, uh, we need you back now. And I'd go, okay. And they, I'd come in and they'd say, we've got to cut your hair. And I, you can't because I'm on Jackie's movie right now. <laughs> Um, and it's your fault for, for, for waiting six months. So there's different memories about all of them, but I, I, the, the most positive ones were probably Curry and Pepper, Middleman and Forsaken Cop. Uh, Jackie's film was of course the best. The, the thing about Jackie's film was again, it's just the things I got to learn. Um, because I, I, even at that time I wanted to be a filmmaker. Um, so it taught me a lot that I didn't really get you know, first-hand experience with, with the other films. I was just there to punch and kick. Yeah, it sounds like um, the fondest memories are when filmmakers and makers got um, personal and viewed you as as an asset and they knew what you could bring to a to a production and uh, rather than just be brought in and and perform a little bit for us like, like, uh, and therefore being impersonal. So it's quite wonderful to hear uh, directors and makers like Chris doing that and, and, and Jackie taking the time Yeah, with you. Uh, I'm sure that there's a case for that. Of course he should take time uh, with uh, his uh, cast and crew, but uh, then again, you, you just told several stories where it, you, you just are treated like... Uh, like puppets a little bit, like uh, coming on when we need you and uh, when it's convenient for us type of thing. So, And uh, I'll just add one thing, and, and this is not to say anything negative about Jackie, because from my own end, my experience was very positive. Um, but that film, Operation Condor, like I said, took about nine months of filming. The good thing for, for myself and Ken Goodman and, and Dan Mintz uh, our two scenes were the mo- uh, hotel scenes. Those were the first ones that were shot, actually, and they were shot in Hong Kong. And at that time, Jackie was just started filming. He was kind of relaxed. The underground Nazi fortress scene, uh, that was shot in the end after we had come back from Morocco and they'd completed Spain and everything. Mm-hmm. And we came back to Hong Kong and shot the the, the underground scene. At that time, though, Jackie was under a lot of pressure because he, he was over budget. He had been taking so long to do this movie. Uh, he had, I think his goal was to finish it for the Chinese New Year market. So there was a lot of stress and a lot of the Westerners didn't come on board with the film until the the fortress scene. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them couldn't stand him. 
you know, uh, because they weren't seeing that side that was willing to take you into the, the editing trailer. Yeah. They weren't seeing the side that was saying, well, I did this because of this and gave you an explanation. At that point, it's just, I got to move. Come on, guys, let's go. Right. And he literally on set, he'd actually have a couple people that say, you come here, come here. And then if they didn't do it quick, literally, and I, I'm not bragging, but there were probably close to a dozen times where we would hear, Bruce, Ken, come here. You're going to replace those guys. Wow. Uh, you know, just because they couldn't pick up the, the, the choreography quick enough. And he didn't want to take the time to, you know, give them instruction. And and after all is said and done, it's it remains my close to my favorite Jackie Chan movie just because of the adventure aspect of it and the scope of it and 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 the quality within, of course, uh, being a an action comedy and a, and uh, w- with the fight tint to it all. And I was wondering about one specific, if you even remember it, uh, when the hotel fight kicks off with you and Ken Goodman and then Jonathan Iskar lurking, whether he was there or just shot weeks later, I don't know. But uh, when it kicks off, uh, Jackie kicks a pole into your face, if I believe, if I remember correctly. And to me, when I watched that, that's a that's a 50, 100 take type of aspect to that scene because Jackie is a perfectionist. That needs to look great. There were, there were two shots in there that took a long time. That one was about 30 takes. And then there's a, one where he throws a hairpin uh, at Ken Goodman. He pulls it out of the actress Dodo uh, Chang. Mm-hmm. Pulls uh, like a wooden hairpin out of her hair and throws it at uh, Ken Goodman. That was about 60 takes. <laughs> yeah. It's, pure, yeah, they're, it's they're, pure Jackie. Yeah. No, there, and there, were, there were ones where it's just, yeah, Jackie's going to do like, you know, 15, 20, whatever takes. So they get upset when it starts going past five or six. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so yeah, but that's pure Jackie because he's a perfectionist. And we used to joke that uh, Golden Harvest basically just gave him a blank check. <laughs> as many things as you want, go and film. Well, he, uh, it was the decade of uh, him uh, up in the ante. I mean, you go back to Dragon Lord and the uh, total amount of takes, I believe, um, for, for the shot- Shuttlecock game in Dragon Lord. Uh, there's either a specific take or a total number of takes within the whole uh, match that is record-breaking. And, and it looks like it because it's it's just pure balletic perfection. And But, but that's what we as external viewers see. We see the, the, the flow of it all, but not, not the... Break, cut, action, cut, action, cut, kind of thing. Yeah. Well, that's that's honestly part of the art of it. And that's what I always felt Hong Kong did better. One, they frame it better. Two, they understand the editing, how it affects the pace and the flow. And that's one of the things I've, I've always preferred in, in Hong Kong films versus, say, you know, your standard Hollywood affair, you know, a Chuck Norris movie of that same kind of time or whatever. You know, with Jackie's, you could see everything. And like you said, it had a, a balletic quality to it. And and as a closer on Armor of God, uh, I mean, you, you, you guys you guys are, but you really need also to be appreciated for the work you put in because you are part of making the narrative and comedic beats work for that movie. If if your parts didn't work, then the movie wouldn't work as a whole. And, uh, and, and Jackie put you in there to aid those aspects and not just to show up and fight. I mean, Jonathan Iskar and Dan Mintz, they're, they're the comedic relief. Yeah party of the film and Jonathan I mean I'm no I, I know Jonathan as an action guy and not the comedic relief and it, it, it shows a different thinking on Jackie's behalf to, to use performers that he knew or got to know in that way too so you're, you're certainly not uh, disposable puppets or anything but you really were, were put to use well in that movie well I'll just give you a little background you know the movie Outlaw Brothers Frankie Chan mm-hmm Majority of the people who went on to work in Operation Condor worked on, uh, sorry, that were in Outlaw Brothers went on to do Operation Condor. They actually did massive auditions, and basically it was them, you know, the the local uh, talent agencies going to hostels and that and looking for foreigners because the the working guys we we're a small network of people we all knew each other. But when we got there and the audition and we see all these other guys coming in and at the end of the day, they end up hiring almost everybody that was on Outlaw Brothers. In fact, Jeff and Mark were supposed to be part of it, but there was, you know, uh, they had prior commitments or something and couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it was just ironic that it just ended up using all us guys. 
The one thing I will say, though, is Jackie actually knew, I think, knew how to direct better. I had some issues on Outlaw Brothers with Frankie, and not to do with my issues with Frankie, but I always felt Frankie wasn't a very good director. And he actually did a little bit of the directing on Operation Condor. Yeah. In one scene, he directs me, and he's telling me, look this way, look this way, do this, do that. And then Jackie comes along and says, uh, let's see what you got. And then Jackie basically changed everything that Jack, uh, Frankie had told me to do, and he made it a lot more subtle. Mm-hmm. I just think Jackie generally is a, is a better director, and I think he's good at you know kind of figuring out the talent and what to do with them. You know, versus say a lot of other directors, and I, I think a lot of it is he's willing to put in the time. You know, per the amount of time he puts into it, and the number of takes he'll do, which your other Hong Kong filmmakers don't have that luxury. Yeah, that's certainly fair. I mean, no, I, I don't know anything about Frankie as a person, but the, watching his movies, there there is an uneven quality from movie to movie, with Outlaw Brothers being one of his very best um, mostly thanks to the the western showcase and the action showcase to go with it uh, uh, i certainly like burning ambition a lot but uh, you know they, they weren't on the same level but certainly worked um, had a trusting relationship because i think uh, frankie was around to ghost direct or assistant direct be assistant director uh, on on a movie or two uh, throughout jackie's career and and, and i guess uh, you know, you, you've spoken of your fellow castmates and uh, you know, on screen and, and off screen, uh, your your friends and all of that. And it, it, it seems like if this was the timeline on Armor of God, uh, that, that IFT happened uh, uh, before Armor of God, it, it, it seems like uh, Jackie went, you, you know, it could have been the story, it isn't, but, but it seems like Jackie went to raid the IFT officers and, uh, and raided talent that then showed up in the IFT movies, you, Ken Goodman, Wayne Archer, Mark King, and Jonathan Iskar. So it, it, it's so wonderful for me as a fan of the IFT movies to see you guys in in this more, in, and this is not a slight, in, in both in a slick, more slick production, but then you have the, the IFT side of it all, where you all appear in these uh, action cut-and-paste movies that were first uh, ninja-tinted and themed, then moved into modern action and then kickboxing uh, kickboxing action uh, and uh, it's a basic question like how, how does IFD come calling in terms of uh, getting you and those guys lead roles in uh, these uh, cut and paste movies that weren't full movie shoots but rather uh, s- select scenes that were then edited into existing movies so so what, what do you remember about um, how IFD came about? Here's the thing all of us hung out like all of us mm-hmm. uh, you know we, we were all became close friends i mean you know once in a while there's like a a minor rivalry or you know you know uh maybe someone didn't like somebody you know but it was never anything major for the most part all those guys hung out we all got along you know a lot of us we used to go to the collin park gym and work out together Uh, we used to all hang out at a place called the mexican club like we're all buddies especially i'd say steve tartaglia Ken Goodman, Mark King, Nick Brandon, who's not as well known, but uh, uh, Mark King, we all hung out, right? Uh, Dan Mintz, we all hung out. Like we literally worked out together all the time, hung out, Um, you know, Wayne Archer, all these guys. Some of the people like Mark Houghton, because he lived in the New Territories uh, and, and was married earlier than most of us. Didn't hang out quite as much, but we're again we're we're all best of buddies. We we all hung out together, so it was, it was a small network, and we actually had uh, a bit of an understanding about what we would charge. Right. We had kind of an almost like I got to say it was like a, a union, and we all came to an understanding that no one would charge less than a certain amount of money. It was like twenty five hundred or two thousand Hong Kong a day or whatever. Like everyone understood. If none of us goes lower than that, then we're, we we can demand that from the companies. But if you know someone takes you know a seven hundred dollar a day gig, which is very little money, then it's going to be hard for us you know, you know to to demand say the two thousand. So you know we all had kind of gentleman understandings. We all hung out. IFD was one of those things that, except for a couple guys, say like Jeff Falcon and Dan Mintz. Uh, and maybe Vincent Lin, they generally didn't want to do it. Um, but for the rest of us, IFD was kind of a, a fun change of pace. They were cheap as hell in terms of payment. 
um, nor is near the payment that you'd get on, say, you know, a typical Hong Kong film like a Curry and Pepper or, or Jackie's film. But you got to be the lead, right? You got to you got to act more. Now they were they were cheap, they were poorly directed, but it was fun, you know. And that that's why most of the guys that you know became kind of the IFD stock and trade guys did it. To be honest, there were peaks and valleys for everybody. Some of the guys like to play up like, oh, I was so successful working on it. There were peaks and valleys, mm-hmm. right? And IFD would actually sometimes be a nice gap filler uh, in terms of money because you could literally IFD was probably doing like 10 of those things a year. Yeah. If they liked you. I mean, I fell out of grace for a little while and I have to thank Ken Goodman and uh, Steve Tartaglia and Mark King because they kind of said, oh, no, bring Bruce back in, right? You know, and then uh, and then I was also, like I said, you know, working quite frequently just because it got, you know, they were fairly, fairly free, uh, consistent. But they were fun. You know, I, I got to be honest. I mean, I sometimes I'll, I'll make joking references and diss them. And I know a few IFD fans out there will call me out on it. And, but honestly, I enjoyed it. I had fun. And there were certain key people there that we'd see all the time. They knew us well. And they were fun to work with. There was a couple of young guys there. Uh, unfortunately, I can only remember one of them right now. His name is Alton, uh, Alton Chung. Yeah, the, that's one of the credits they used uh, because uh, after a while, uh, Godfrey Ho left the company. He was with them mainly during the period where they were making all those ninja action movies. And when you guys came along, uh, I, I gather Godfrey wasn't as much involved and eventually faded out and started making his own movies. I never worked for Godfrey. Yeah. Uh, in IFD. I worked for Godfrey on one or two other projects that were not IFD, and I don't know if it was similar to IFD. I worked for Godfrey on something like that, and another one where Godfrey was only a producer, not a director. But I never worked for Godfrey within IFD, and I know he was more kind of the ninja era. Yeah. Uh, I never I never did any of the ninja movies per se. There was, just as a weird footnote, there was a guy, I think his name was Nemo Gaspera, who did a couple films and he was the first guy I worked with. And I think I did two films with him and I think he was their only non-Asian director ever. Um, but most of my work was with Alton and Alton was a super nice guy, uh, really easy to get along with. And he was kind of the, the, the one to push for the, the epic kickboxer King, because that was kind of a little bit of a departure, but yeah, they were great guys. And Alton, I always loved working with them. He was a super nice guy to work with. I always looked forward to uh, working with him. It, it's that fascinating thing with IFD is that they uh, they try to tap in anyway to the um, to the trends at the time, and you know you can argue that Bloodsport was the catalyst for for IFD doing these kickboxer cut and paste movies uh, in the first place. And as with anything, uh, there, there are there's quality issues across those IFD movies, but get, but I think it's uh, it's a problem with uh, they, they were manufacturing so many of them. These cut and paste movies are churning in them out and. And in, in the case of Kickboxer King, it kind of worked out because one, the, the source movie from from Thailand with uh, Panarita Cry and the guys is is a terrific stunt showcase that then is combined with your footage, which is very different. <laughs> it, it's very different, but it's all good fun, man. And uh, you, I, I like the guys the, that you guys got the exposure that you did and the chance to provide that attempt at a genre movie and see if it works out in the combination with uh, the Thai footage and it's all fun and, and also I, I don't know how much of this was uh, thought beforehand but on that movie you guys are credited as uh, you and Ken as fight choreographers and I'm not sure if they really went that route at least not officially it was always choreography by someone else whether a made up credit or not so do, do you remember if that was the case where they they said you guys take care of it, or you guys just involved yourself naturally uh, during doing action. They they had uh, if you know who Ridley Choi is. Yeah, of course. Uh, Ridley Choi was one of the guys that did a lot of the fight choreography for the IFD shows. Like say, Catman was Ridley. Recall mm-hmm. uh, correctly. Love Catman. <laughs> there were two or three younger guys from Jackie's team. Uh, I can't remember their names right now, but. They would frequently do IFD, and they'd always say to us, "Don't tell Jackie! Don't tell Jackie!" <laughs> because they they had a kind of a thing where they weren't supposed to do outside work, but they would actually make more money on an IFD show than they would on Jackie. They made up credits anyway, IFD, so no one would know. Yeah, yeah, 
and I, I think most Hong Kong people never even really knew much about IFD anyways. Yeah. Uh, so they're like working for them. But that particular one, what happened was Alton called us up and Ken and I had done, you know, a fair number of things for them. And they said, look, guys, we want to do something different. And Alton literally pulled out Rocky three and he said, we want to do something like this. And I think it was Alton just wanted to stretch his muscles creatively because uh, Alton had actually gone to film school, I think like someplace like, you know, Idaho or something crazy like that mm-hmm. in the States. Um, someplace you wouldn't expect, like Middle America. Um, but he had been a proper film school graduate. And Hong Kong is very different in the way films are done. And I think Alton was just kind of frustrated with doing this kind of cut and paste, taking old movies and trying to make new movie work into it and then marketing it as something new. So he really he wanted to stretch the muscles. And they they really pushed Joseph Lai uh, the owner of IFD to let them do that. And one of the things they do is like, we'd like you guys to try, try your hand at choreographing this. And I, and I gotta be honest, most of it was Ken Goodman. Uh, but it was essentially myself and Ken, right? One of the, the, the problems I found when we were doing that was the camera people who will always listen to the action director, uh, didn't listen so much to us that time. And I, I think partly it was communication because uh, Ken and I could both speak a bit of Chinese. We weren't fluent, but we could speak, you know, okay, broken Chinese. You know, so the only thing was we had a little bit of uh, reluctance to cooperate from from the camera guy, who most of the time was great with the other people like Ridley and so on. But yeah, for the most part, it was all of us. I think one day Ridley or someone came and helped out, but Ridley was always super cool with me and Ken. In fact, we used to work out together sometimes. But yeah, yeah, and it was, I think, their first departure from using kind of the, the guys like Ridley and so on. Yeah, it's certainly nice to to see because, and and for once, those are real credits, right? So uh, for once, us uh, um, viewers knew that there's probably some truth to the fact that Bruce and Ken did work on the choreography. They didn't make up those credits. Normally it was uh, tailored for the international market and therefore a lot of... Uh, names made up or um or you know ridley's credit occasionally was in there but uh, sometimes it was just someone choi right whether yeah. ridley or not so you never knew sometimes yeah it's a, it's a good fun period uh quotable movie kickboxer king that is but it, i i like that uh, you guys still came out of it with uh with a rational and level-headed attitude in terms of what it was and what you were producing uh in terms of uh, quality and to, to get that chance to be seen internationally because I'm, I'm sure these movies reach more viewers than sometimes you might think because the, the, yeah. the, dis, the distribution went out there it was global man and uh and, and shit they even made might have made a theater or two those movies and not just video yeah that 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 i don't know about but you know i've i've had not that many but i've had the odd like you know fan of those genre of films uh here in vancouver uh, approach me and I had one guy literally showed up with you know Catman and Kickboxer King um, and he's like you're in these movies and I'm like oh god you're not you're not weird are you I hope uh, <laughs> well it's not at least not dressed as Catman and knocking on your door that way yeah yeah those films did get wide exposure and you know to this day I still get people who will will ask about it and you know there's a, a Jesus out there mm-hmm. shout out um, and he's he's like a serious fan, and sometimes I'll take a book. Ah, oh, stuff was nothing special, but honestly, it was great fun. Uh, I I know it's nothing more than just kind of a low budget indie type film, but they again they afforded us opportunities that we wouldn't get on other productions. You know, especially when it came to like the acting stuff. Yeah. And I'll be honest, De Niro, we're not Pacino. We're you know we're 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 martial art guys. You know that are are just trying to stretch ourselves as well. Absolutely. And uh, and and that's an attitude to be to be admired. That uh, that level-headed attitude for sure.
So that's it for part one. And I want to thank Bruce for setting aside time to chat with us uh, openly and honestly. And uh, there's more next week, folks, as uh, the story continues. And Bruce transitions back to Vancouver and eventually starts crafting his path as an indie filmmaker. Making the action uh, beyond redemption. So it's a sort of a big making off episode and uh, hopefully that's uh, there's some inspirations in there for independent filmmakers and up-and-coming filmmakers so check it out uh, so um, i'm gonna conclude uh, this week's uh, show thank you very very much for uh, listening and uh, in short in terms of the contact information for all your podcast on fire network needs go to podcastonfire.com all relevant social media links will be there as well as how to subscribe to us on itunes and what have you so uh, that's it for me can be i hope you enjoyed and uh, let me know um, how these uh, interview sessions uh, go down because uh, it's still a work in progress I, uh, i've got a i've got a process that i've that i'm using in terms of research and what have you but this uh, is something that can be improved upon just like many things can be improved upon so uh, do let me know uh, what you thought and uh, in the meantime this is me signing out for this episode so part two of the bruce fontaine interview coming up next week this is going to be signing off bye bye